When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond Z podcast. And on this episode, F is for From Russia With Love. My name is Tom Butler and joining me, on board for another pleasure cruise down the Bosphorus, where the moonlight is irresistible, is a man who I like to call Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. <laughs> there was more to that, but it just started getting a bit weird, so I uh, <laughs> cut it short. Uh, unfortunately, um, our co-host Tom Wheatley cannot join us this week. He is poorly with the dreaded coronavirus, but he is on the mend. But um, never mind about that, because joining us as we take another look at Sean Connery's second outing as Bond is film historian and author of Fashioning James Bond, Costume, Gender and Identity in the World of 007, is Dr Luella Chapman. Welcome. Hello, and thank you for inviting me here today. Um, our pleasure. We are um, uh, big fans of your book. I think um, I think we'll both agree it's, uh, it's indispensable reading when it comes to the costuming uh, in the world of Bond. And actually, it's just a great book mm-hmm. on the history of Bond um, itself. Um, can you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about how you were introduced to the world of James Bond and how you sort of became a fan of that, uh, of the films? Of course. Um, I think like a lot of people, um, I was introduced to James Bond by my dad. I do remember a very dreary Saturday afternoon when I was around about seven years of age um, and my dad suggested that we watched Doctor No, which is the very first James Bond film, of course. And my brother and I, Mike, watched it. We really enjoyed it. And so a week later, my dad showed us uh, From Russia With Love. And of course, I'm of the generation where, you know, you grow up in Britain watching the Bond films on ITV. And if you're very, very good, then you can stay up past the ITV news um, and finish off watching the James Bond (laughs) film. So, you know, that's how I was introduced to Bond. And You know, I remember it just being really fun and really enjoyable. And then my first cinema experience of Bond was Goldeneye. 
with those Bosnian, of course. So, you know, and then from there, you know, you get the enjoyment of actually going to the cinema and watching Bond. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it sounds very similar to our experience. I think ITV, mm. the Bond franchise, owes a lot to ITV <laughs> for UK Bond fans. And I think, uh, Brendan, was yours first one GoldenEye in the cinema as well? I th- Do you know what? I think it was Tomorrow Never Dies. Ah, so oh, it's a great slightly... film. It's a great film. So it's just after... Um, so um, can you tell us about your book, Fashioning James Bond, and how that all came about? Of course, yeah. Um, my background um, is in costume design. So my first uh, university degree that I did um, was based at the University of Leeds, and I studied costume design. And I realised relatively quickly that I can't sew very well. <laughs> As actually quite a few designers themselves say, I mean, Julie Harris famously says that she can't sew either. So I feel that I'm in a nice group of people there that have a similar problem. But I realised that in order to sort of go into costume design properly, I wouldn't really be able to do that. And so I thought, well, I can still write about it. So that's one element of why I was keen to write about uh, fashion and costume in film generally. But I really loved the James Bond films. And I thought, what a great idea to combine two of my loves together. Um, And the other thing I noticed was that there's quite a few um, fans out there that write about Bond and fashion. For example, of course, Matt Spazer uh, and Peter Brooker that do a wonderful podcast um, from Taylor's Who Love. And of course, Matt Spazer does Bond Suits and this fantastic blog. And I recommend people please go and read that it's great and they've also got their own book out on tailors but I also realized that there was quite a lot to say about women and costume in James Bond um, as well as the suits Um, other people of course have published on women and the James Bond franchise in relation to costume particularly uh, Monica Germana and I recommend you go and uh, read her book uh, Bond Girls which is also published by Bloomsbury. Um, But what I wanted to do in my book is combine the two um, and particularly look at it rather than from a theoretical framework and analysis, but to look at it from the process and history and those that were involved in making the costume decisions. Yeah, it's a a brilliant book, um, uh, really like meticulously detailed. And I think um, anyone who's listening to this really should, um, yeah, get stuck into it and uh, they'll... I mean, I found I was learning stuff in every single chapter. There was like one of the first things you were talking about, one of the myths about um, how Ian Fleming wasn't a fan of Sean Connery, but you you, you sort of dived into the like some correspondence between Ian Fleming and someone It was saying that, oh, he actually he wasn't that down on him when um, when he was initially cast, Um, which I just thought was fascinating. But can you tell us a bit about? Some of the people, the other people, like this people you spoke to, and who, how you went about the research for the book. Yes, I mean it was it was really quite hard to research in some senses because speaking as a film historian, not many people um, within the costume part of of film really donate their own papers to archives. Um, so, for example, at the British Film Institute, you'll find very significant collections donated by directors and film producers, for example, Joseph Losey, Michael Balkan, etc. But you don't often have people donating their own papers to the British Film Institute. So 
for example, you Julie Harris has donated some of her designs, um, but not much of the paperwork. Whereas if you look at Lindy Hemming's collection at the BFI, she's donated a lot of scripts, but not her own designs. So it was really interesting to try and piece this book together through various different archives. Um, and I'm very grateful to the archivists um, that helped me with this research and also the researchers who work in uh, costume history, um, particularly um, those that helped me out with looking at the um, West Yorkshire Archive Service because they have the Montagu Burton collection there. And that was fantastic when I sort of discovered that to go along and learn more about their failed suit range uh, in the mid-1960s. Um, but in terms of people I interviewed, they were very generous with their time. Um, so I'd really like to thank them. And the people that I spoke to um, regarding this book were Natalie Watson, who is the daughter of Anthony Sinclair, who was the first tailor of James Bond for the films. So he tailors Sean Connery throughout his tenure and in um, Diamonds of Forever. Uh, Sam and Mary Foster, uh, who are the daughter and wife of shirt uh, maker Frank Foster, uh, Polly Westmacott Hayward and Glenis Roberts, who are the daughter and former wife of Doug Hayward, who uh, tailored um, Roger Moore's suits. Uh, Del Smith, who is the employee, who was an employee of uh, Doug Hayward in the late 1990s. And he went on to work for the Savile Row firm uh, Kilgore and is now currently setting up his own tailoring business. Um, so those people are the ones that I really spoke to uh, for this book and you know I'm really grateful for their contributions because I think that really made a significant impact uh, for my research for this book. Yeah did it did it give you um did it highlight the importance that of the costumes to the history and the longevity of the Bond films? Definitely and I think it was really important to hear their voices because mm. I think like I said before, it's really difficult to piece together the kind of jigsaw puzzle of the costumes. And I think sometimes these voices are ignored in sort of general histories of the Bond films. And that I'm not making a like slight against anyone else's research, but I think that it's really hard to track down these people. I think you have to be quite bold in, in being able to contact them. I mean, I'm sure Natalie Watson won't mind me saying this, but I actually discovered her because... I was reading through um, Taylor and Cutter, uh, which is a menswear trade paper that was published during the 1960s and 70s. And there's a very brief mention of her in there. And I, I mentioned uh, to various, uh, to many various friends that I'd really love to talk to her, but I, I doubt that I'd ever get to talk to her. And on Facebook, there's a group called the Talking Pictures TV group. And <sighs> she commented on a post rather randomly about the suits that her father made and I was like that's got to be you <laughs> that's got to be you as as Auntie Sinclair's daughter and um so I messaged her on Facebook I said oh I hope you don't mind me contacting you but I think you might have been the daughter of Auntie Sinclair would you mind me you know interviewing you and I explained my project and she was very generous with her time and we met up for lunch and um she was wonderful but it was you know it's one of those really random but fortuitous moments and I think that's what a lot of my book happens to be is is fortuitous moments where people are just very helpful and willing to share you know their own stories about things yeah I guess that's academia that's isn't it you've got to be uh, bold about finding the, the people who are, are willing to talk and, and everyone you spoke to they were I guess happy to to contribute what they knew 
Yeah, yeah, I was very lucky. Um, just in terms of brief process, you know, you interview people and you chat to them and then you, you know, you write up the transcripts and then you share it with them to make sure they're happy with what you will publish. Then you write it and then you double check with them and everything else. So I was very lucky in that respect, um, which was fantastic. So talking about From Russia With Love, because um, well, this is a follow up to an episode that we've done about uh, the making of that film. Um, that film is celebrating its 60th birthday next year. And we understand that you've written or writing a book about From Russia With Love. What can you tell us about that? OK, so the um, book is going to be published as part of the uh, British Film Institute BFI Film Classic series. Um, so please do go and check it out on um the website is going to be the first James Bond film to appear in the BFI film classic series, which I'm quite delighted about. Um, and it's quite interesting that Bond hasn't really been published before in that series. Um, so it's a very small book. It's a lot shorter than fashioning James Bond. It's around 25,000 words. Um, and it basically talks about why this film should be recognised as a classic in its own right, but also as part of the series of Bond films. Um, and it was it was fun to research. I did research it during a pandemic. So again, I'm very grateful to the archivists that were able to help me out uh, for that. Um, I was able to remotely access quite a few American archives for that. And that was fantastic to be able to do that. So for example, I was able to access the Richard Maybaum papers, um, the John Court collection, which is held at the University of Southern California. Um, Bloomington hold the Fleming manuscripts, and I was able to look at that, and that is really fascinating. So if you'd like to know more about the um, the original manuscript Fleming drafted for From Russia With Love, please do ask. Um, you know, so I was able to access quite a few archives as part of that, and, of course, the British Film Institute. And it was just, it was great to see people come together to help me um, and a lot of Bond fans as well, you know, uh, Mark Ashby, Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury, you know, all your usual suspects, you know, Mark O'Connell, etc. So I'm very grateful to them for helping me out with that research. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there about it being the first one in the BFI classics, because it's a film that we talk about being one that transcends Bond into just being one of the all time great pieces of film, espionage film, 1960s British cinema it's just a cracking piece of cinema like beyond it being a James Bond film it's also one of the best Bond films as well so it's really interesting that it is the first one to be recognized in that way um do you remember seeing From Russia With Love the first time yeah I saw it um this this one wasn't ITV this was an off-air uh, VHS copy that my dad had um, about a week after I saw Dr. No. But what my dad didn't tell my brother and I um, was that there were more James Bond films and that, in fact, there was, you know, a whole set of novels out there. So we didn't know anything really about Bond. So when I saw, you know, uh, Grant in the Orient Express carriage telling Bond to get down on his knees. You know, I really did think that might be the end of Bond. You know, I didn't know. And the suspense is amazing. You know, that film is just so fantastic for that. I don't think any other Bond film has quite encapsulated that wonderful kind of spy thriller, you know, espionage aspect, um, you know, at all since that 
film. It's just, it's really interesting for Mr. Love, isn't it? Because it, it's kind of an anomaly in the Bond series with its complicated plot and its espionage. And yet it's so very good. And it's such an efficient film given the complicated plot as well. It's just such a fascinating entry, I think. Um, it'd be wonderful kind of to see more, but in a sense, it kind of should be a standalone Bond film. You know, it's one of the films I think you could take to a desert island if you've never seen a Bond film and watch that one and just be able to live without ever seeing any other Bond film. Yeah, I think I agree with that, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also unencumbered with a lot of the tropes that you come to expect of Bond. So it does stand alone in that way, like um, feeling unique in and of itself. Um, And uh, you're right. I mean, you put it on and it's like the, the plot just rattles along at such a pace. I think it's I think it's terrific. I think it's fascinating that the most stunning scene in that film is actually the chess scene, isn't it, in terms of set? I mean, Ken Adam was not involved in From Russia With Love, uh, unlike Doctor No. And it's not a casino where it's the most expensive scene or the most glamorous scene. It, it's the chess scene, you know. Yeah, Sid, Sid Kane is it, it, production designer on this one, I, I seem to remember. yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked about that set in itself, and when, yeah, I think I, I think I've seen behind the scene photos as well. Isn't the top half of it like a matte painting yeah, or something? Yeah, it's yeah. An incredible piece of filmmaking, really. So obviously, the, this film had twice the budget of the first Doctor No. Um, how did that affect the costume department and the resources they had access to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite interesting. What I've discovered in my research for, specifically for From Russia With Love, um, is that the percentage of budget, a large percentage of budget seemed to go on labour. Not by much, but more on labour went for From Russia With Love than on the actual production of the film itself. Whereas if you look at Dr No, and I analyse this in my From Russia With Love book, um, the there is more of a percentage going on the production of the film than there is on the labour costs, so the people that are working on the film. What I would say, and, and, and this has to be hedged in kind of what the trade papers are reporting as, as much as the budget, um, I was quite lucky with Dr No because they've got lots of budgetary files and final cost reports in the film finances archive for Dr. No, whereas for From Russia and Love, there isn't really that evidence available. So Dr. No's final cost was just over £392,000. It's reported in the trade press that From Russia and Love is around the £700,000 kind of final cost mark. So there is a significant increase but some of that is actually on salary. So, for example, Connery gets paid £6,000 for Dr. No. Um, and by Russia, it's, you know, around the £24,000 mark. You know, so you're getting, you know, more money going towards salaries. And, and you find this with other salary costs as well with Dr. No. Sorry, with from Russia with Love. So there is that. But what, what you do notice is there's more tailored items for Connery going on in this film you know so uh for example in dr no and i outline this in fashioning james bond you've got around five tailored items and then a few more costumes around that and then you've got you know seven lounge suits one dinner suit and one coats going on in in from russia love so you've got a more expensive budget 
Now, this is a little bit different for Goldfinger, um, just briefly touching upon that, because some of the suits that Connery wears uh, were worn in Women of Straw. You know, so I argue there's more budget to be afforded to the other characters in the film than there is for Connery, because his suits are already pretty much tailored for that film. Um, but yeah, so that's I think that is evidence that Russia is using a higher costume budget. Um, but what's really interesting when you look at sort of budgets just over the period of the 1960s more generally um, is that costume comes quite low down on the, you know, where they're going to spend the money. A lot more money goes towards sets, you know, um, so and things like that, you know, where they think the money on the screen should be or going on location and hotels and travel, particularly where Terence Young and Harry Saltzman in, are involved. It has to be said, <laughs> you know, um, a lot of money is spent on going to the best restaurants and hotels and, you know, things like that. Um, but going going back to Dr. No, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because, you know, the, the costume budget, you know, starts to rise a bit when they're on location in Jamaica. Terence Young famously sources a sulker dressing gown and then passes it off as his own for Miss Tarry to wear, which is one of the most ridiculous arguments I've ever read in relation to costume. <laughs> but then what's interesting is when they go back to London, there's a massive hoik in costume expenditure and that surrounds the casino scene at the club, you know, and they, they are going around all the houses and spending, or the fashion houses and spending money, which is rather amusing to see in terms of the budget and the costumes because suddenly they've got to, you know, buy 10 evening gowns, you know, 20 cocktail dresses, etc., etc. you know. Well, you mentioned that casino scene in Doctor No. Uh, I found a fascinating story you you tell in the book about Eunice Gason um, and the dress that she's wearing as Sylvia Trench in that uh, Doctor No casino scene. Uh, Would you mind sort of retelling it here? Of course not. No, I think it's one of the funniest stories, isn't it? You know, um, (laughs) maybe second best to Ursula Andress and her webbing belt, which I think is also another fabulous story. But yes, in relation to Eunice Gason. So... The story, the anecdote goes, um, and I believe this to be quite true from, from various different evidence, but they originally sourced a kind of tawny brown gold evening dress for the scene. And of course, if you watch the scene in Doctor No, you can see that the wallpaper of the set is exactly the same colour. And Terence Young, when Eunice Gason appears, famously says, no, no, no. He often says, no, 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 in many reports. But he says, no, 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 we can't see her. You need to get another dress. She needs to stand out. You know, this is the scene where we introduce, you know, um, James Bond for the very first time and we need to be able to see her. So Eunice Gason and Eileen Sullivan, who's the wardrobe mistress, uh, go off to try and source another dress. And Eileen Sullivan, who by this time is an established uh, wardrobe mistress, takes her to what she believes to be um, a shop that sells dresses in near Pinewood. And it has since turned out to be a wool shop and therefore they don't sell dresses anymore. But as apparently as Eunice Gason's leaving, um, she spots this red dress um, and she, she suggests, well, why don't we try this? However, um, as many actresses like to note, 
the dress is too large for her. It is a size 20 when she is a size 8. And so she was concerned about the, the dress fitting her. Whereas um, Eileen Sullivan then responds, well, it doesn't matter about the the size. We can cut that down. Uh, we'll take it. And so they take this dress and they take it back to Pima Studios. Uh, Eileen Sullivan cuts a chunk out of the fabric. And then for, for them to be able to rehearse and perform the scene, she pins it together uh, on the left-hand side. Now, what's particularly interesting, I think, when you watch the film is that you can actually see that the way the scene is rehearsed appears in the film because Eunice Gason will always hide her left-hand side of the dress from the audience. So if you just re-watch it through, you will see a continuously hiding um, the left-hand side. And you'll even see at one point when she stands up from the table, a man step in front of her when she turns around because they're effectively hiding that. Now, I suspect they did sew it together properly for the actual scene when it was filmed, but the fact they're performing in that way suggests that that is actually indeed true. When they rehearsed the scene, it was pinned together down the left-hand side, and I think that's really interesting. And then by the end of the scene, you can see her wear, you see her holding a sort of uh, faux fur coat and gold shoes, and I suspect that's the shoes she was supposed to wear with the original costume, but then they you know, had to change the dress so she could be seen. Um, so, yeah, it's just a wonderful anecdote. But what I would say is that, you know, when you research costume, it's so difficult to find this stuff in archives that you do also have to look at anecdotes and, and sort of assess how true you think they may be. In this case, I do think it really, you know, because of the way they were sourcing costumes, I think that is actually quite true, you know. It's a brilliant piece of movie magic, if if that is the case. Uh, um, yeah, just shows you how cobbled together these things are often on the day, isn't it? It's, uh, it's hilarious. Taking it back to from Russia with Love, costume where costumes they appear to help tell the story. For example, Red Grant's costume. Um, could you just sort of dive into that a little bit for us? Oh, yeah. I was going to talk about Rosa Klebb's costume. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, I love Red Grant. I love Robert Shaw, by the way. You know, um, but I, was, yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote down all these notes about Rosa Klebb. I mean, what's interesting, I mean, there's, I tell the story in my book, the um, quoting from Jocelyn Rickards, who's the costume designer, um, who explains when she tried to source... Um, Kleb's military costume, she had some trouble uh, with Berman's and Nathan's, particularly Tiny, and I suspect that might be Tiny Nichols, who then comes to later work on the Bond films, which is, is very interesting in itself. Um, but she wanted to source a military costume for Rose Kleb, and there's some very interesting developments, I think, in that on from Dr. No, and the move to a kind of feminine mouth suit almost you know there's some really interesting developments it's sort of this is even though Blofeld's in the film Blofeld himself wears a suit whereas Rosa Klebb has the more eastern influenced um attire but the particularly interesting thing I think with villains and costume in from Russia with Love um is of course the famous shoe you know um and the the weapon the weaponized sort of fashion that's going on and how this then developed later it develops later in bomb films you know so the shoes themselves uh themselves were designed by Sid Kane uh and produced by Luxford 
based on uh, Sid Kane's design. Um, now, what's really interesting when I was tracing through just generally from Russia Love's history, um, in Fleming's draft manuscript um, that you can view in Bloomington um, in the uh, University of Indiana Library, um, the shoes themselves don't appear in Fleming's draft. It's just the poison knitting needles. Um, and Bond actually survives in the draft of the novel to take uh, Tatiana out for dinner. So you've got this really interesting kind of idea going on where Bond doesn't die at the end of the novel. He actually survives. Um, now, Fleming changes this by the time of the publication of From Russia Love and then introduces the shoes because the shoes famously, you know, infect Bond with poison. And it's really, it's revealed in the novel Dr. No, which of course appears after From Russia, which is published after From Russia Love, that, you know, um, Bond survives, whereas Cleb doesn't. Now, what's interesting then in the draft treatments uh, written by Maybaum is that Kronstein, who appears in the film and gets killed by a boot by Morzeni with the flick shoe, or rather flick boot, if you if you look at it. Um, in the original treatment, Constine actually gets shot. By the time of the second treatment, he gets killed by a poison gas pellet in an elevator. And it's not until the script that Morzeni then actually uses a, a boot with a poison flick knife in it to actually kill him. And then later... Cleb then comes in with her poison flick knife shoe to actually kill or attempt to kill Bond at the end. And of course, the knitting needles are omitted. So you've got some really interesting changes, I think, it from you know novel to pre-production as to what they're going to do with the shoe and how they're going to develop that. They obviously recognise it as a very cinematic moment, and indeed it is, you know, similar to you know Jill Masterson being painted in gold. But they don't quite yet know how to develop that further and it's not really until the final film that they're like right okay this is how this is going to work and this is how this suspense is going to develop and I think that's fascinating in relation to costume and suspense and and how that film really encapsulates that through the story of the shoe yeah it's uh what obviously now is one of the most famous pieces of film uh costuming ever isn't it the the, the poison shoe and um Am I right in thinking that Fleming had originally not wanted to kill off? Uh, had yeah. So you're saying he was originally going to let Bond live, and then he left it ambiguous because he was kind of sick of writing Bond. Is that is that right? That's my understanding. Yes, in the original yeah. draft, um, you've got Bond explaining to Mathis how he's going to take uh, one of the most beautiful women out for dinner in Paris, and he's going to take uh, Tatiana out. So on dealing with uh, Razor Cleb, Mathis suggests that Bond accompany him to lunch, to which Bond refuses as he has, quote, a date for the most beautiful woman in Paris and I'm going to be spending the night with her. Asked who the woman is, Fleming writes, quote, <clears throat> we shall be having dinner as usual on a train. Bond smiled grimly at the thought. And the girl, well, apart from being the most beautiful woman in Paris, she also happens to be the most beautiful woman in Smirsh. And so what's really interesting, I think, with that ending, he's, he wasn't intending originally to kill Bond off at all. But you've also got this very dark notion of Smirsh and 
by the time he then comes to publish it, he's decided he wants to potentially uh, not write any more Bond films. Um, as to the process of that, I I haven't managed to find evidence of where he then decided to change that. I know there's lots of reports on why he might want to, to have done that retrospectively, but it, it seems interesting he changed the ending because all the evidence I can see is that people who are, you know, reading the manuscript before it's published aren't reading that version of it. They're reading a later version where Bond potentially um, or ambiguously sort of has, he has that ambiguous ending, doesn't it, where Bond might die. So it's when did Fleming change it? And that's one thing I'm not quite sure we'll ever know, but it's just fascinating. When I read that ending and this draft manuscript, I was like, oh, my God, that's huge. You know, he didn't actually intend that that would happen. Um, there's other little fun things with that very early manuscript, which I suspect is written in January, what, 90... When's it published? 1957, is it? So it's... I reckon it's written January of that year um, before it then gets published in July. So it's... Uh, Rosa Klebb's original name, Fleming interchanges it, is Biella Klebb, B-I-E-L-A. Um, but he also, the, the famous reference to her being sexual neuter, um, he actually mentions in there that she wants to seek with men, women and animals, which is rather dark <laughs> for the 1950s. And so he omits that reference. When you read the novel, he gets rid of the and animals. But that's fascinating, kind of that, that dark Fleming-esque mind going on. So it's just really interesting. Fleming often imbues his uh, villains with some strange like uh, qu uh, personality quirks, doesn't he? Like that often like... Um... You know, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they abstain from everything, that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, it feels, yeah, it's something he likes to do. Uh, tell us, anything else you can tell us about that that manuscript? Like, was it one that you were viewing online virtually or did you go see it in person? Um, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that Bloomington were amazing um, because... At the time it was locked down, we couldn't fly, you know, anywhere, let alone the US. Um, I believe they've recently reopened. So what they do is they arrange um, for researchers to be able to kind of have two kind of online Zoom sessions per academic semester. So what they do is this kind of very funky Zoom conference you can have with them with what is effectively an overhead projector for those of us that are familiar <laughs> with overhead projectors. And... They will flick through the manuscript for you and you can read it online and you're very welcome to take notes, but you can also ask them to mark up pages. And for a very, very small price, which is amazing, you can ask them to send you the digital PDF copy of it for you to read. Mm. So what I did during my two 50-minute sessions was ask them to sort of flick through the manuscript and ask them to mark it up so I could then read it in my own time, which is <clears throat> not the best way to do research. I would always argue that research in person, if you're able to do it and spend time looking at a manuscript such as that is always better. But when you're in the middle of a COVID pandemic, you, you go with what you can have. And what I will say is that the Americans have been, all archives that I've 
you know contacted have been very generous and and have really worked out how to do archive research remotely which I think is amazing and is fantastic um but yeah it was like watching a sort of overhead projector but on via zoom which I thought was great you know yeah whatever works <laughs> do you intend to do you intend to go in person at all Yes, I'd love to go back because all I'd love to see all of Fleming's manuscripts. Mm. Um, I can't quite recall the story, but I do recommend Googling Fleming and Bloomington, uh, Indiana, because it is a really interesting story as to how his manuscripts ended up in that particular archive. And they've got lots of web pages and they've had previous exhibitions about how that came about because it is an unusual thing, isn't it, to think that mm. O. Fleming's manuscripts ended up there, you know, not in Jamaica, not in London, you know, um, which would have been the obvious kind of places you'd think that would end up. Um, so, yeah, please do check that out. But the... Um, but yeah, it's it, you know I would love to go back, and the other papers I would really love to go and read properly through in person are the Richard Maybaum papers, which are based at Iowa, uh, and the John Court collection um, at the University of Southern California as well, because I think they'll be fantastic, mm. and I can't wait. Oh, John Cork was very generous with his time. He came on the podcast actually. He was a terrific um, resource and has been really helpful actually. Uh, in the long run, which is just something I love about um, meeting all these people. We had Raymond Benson on as well. And just everyone just seems like happy to share. And I just, yeah, we love meeting uh, all the people um, connected to Bond in that way. Um, so just just taking it back to From from Russia With Love, um, at, what was really interesting was knowing that you were coming on the podcast and watching the film through the lens of the costumes, which is something I have to admit, I don't do that very often. But just there was just so much detail within the costumes that I'd never noticed before. Is that something when you're watching a film, that's what you're that's really what you're focusing on? Or are you able to just sit back and enjoy the films for what they are? I do try to enjoy the films first for what they are. You know, um, I've got to be honest, with no time to die, um, besides Paloma's costume, I can't give you all that much detail on the costumes in no time to die because on the two occasions I've watched it, I've watched it just for enjoying it as a fan, as an audience viewer. Um, I remember when I was coming to analyse Octopussy for my book, I spent eight hours looking at that film for costume you know it takes a long time um so you know I do try to remove myself from analyzing a film on its first viewing uh in terms of fashion and costume because it just takes ages you know um I'm sure like people like Matt Spazer will attest to this you know you watch it first for enjoyment and then at some point you bring yourself around to analyzing it um, but yeah, I mean, from Russia with Love, going back to that, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because they really develop, don't they, on the tailoring jokes and um, what's not in the script, but I think might be improvised by Connery and the other actors, um, Pedro Armanderas uh, and Peter Bayliss, who plays Benz, is you've got that wonderful comment about, oh, I'm not keen on his tailor, you know, when he's in the, the Orient Express camp. That's not in the script, so I suspect that's actually improvised at the time. Um, 
but then you've also got you know the wonderful fashion show and all the jokes that come with it between Bond and Tatiana as well you know on the Orient Express you've got some some real development there on from Doctor No you know which begins with obviously um you know Bond and Felix Leiter you know my Taylor Savile Row you know so you've got some wonderful developments that then continue throughout the series and particularly during Roger Moore's tenure of tailoring so you've got some you know really wonderful things there too you mentioned uh, the Roger Moore era then um and I know sometimes a bit it's a bit of a shorthand to say you know some some of the costumes in his era weren't that like uh, timeless perhaps but do you have um is there a particular era of Bond costumes that fascinates you the most and what do you think of the Roger Moore era costumes? <laughs> I think I think they're of their time, but to be fair, um, you know Roger Moore absolutely loves fashion. I think he is uh, the Bond actor that has the most interest in menswear, and this is shortly followed by Daniel Craig, of course. But you know, I think that. Roger Moore as well, what you've got to remember is in the 1980s, he's named by many of the British press as one of the best-dressed men, you know. So it's all about context, isn't it? You know, at the time, Roger Moore suits and famous safari suits are seen, you know, to be highly fashionable. Uh, It's not really until we look back retrospectively that we make jokes about his safari suits and, and flared trousers. And I think, and I, I, I hate to say this, I think we're going to have similar to with Daniel Craig. You know, I think people will look back and say, oh, these suits, I mean, they're already saying it sometimes, that, oh, the suits are too tight, they're cut in a particular way. And, you know, whereas with Connery, they're more timeless. With Piers Brosnan, you can argue they're more timeless, you know, and, and what interested me when I was researching this book is the agency of how the costumes work and how they appear on screen, you know. You find the suits are more timeless when either the director or the costume designer suggest, oh, this is who Taylor's Bond. Whereas when the actor suggests who Taylor's Bond, they are more of their time and deemed to be more fashionable. Now, you know, these creations that Bond is wearing are not bad, you know, they're not shoddy workmanship or anything like that but they are of their time and Mm. i think that's really interesting when you put it into the historic context of how the decisions are made and who has the agency over how bond is dressed which is why i'm quite interested to see what happens with the next james bond and who then tailors the next james bond and how that you know who who comes out with the agency of how bond is dressed do you have a favorite sort of definitive bond look it's this one's really difficult for me because (laughs) there's so many i mean i think that anthony sinclair suits particularly in connery's uh first five films are timeless you know i love diamonds and forever but i think those suits are very much tailored to connery's differing physique shall we say but also (laughs) of the 1970s although it is one of my favorite james bond films um, I think Dimitrov Major does very well um, with George Lazenby uh, and he only really appears in one film so it's very difficult to know the developments I mean one of my favourite outfits worn 
um, by any bond, and I know other tailors and fans agree with me, is um, what Roger Moore wears in uh, Live and Let Die, um, where he wears the most beautiful uh, Chesterfield overcoat tailored by Cyril Castle. It's absolutely stunning. You know, it's a stunning piece of a coat and it's wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, and his Anglo Vitucci suits and Spy Who Loved Me are really distinctive. They're beautiful to look at. And then Doug Hayward's workmanship. I love Piers Brosnan in Brioni, you know. Um, and I think Tom Ford as well. You know, the, there is something to be appreciated. And mm. certainly from Skyfall, we see Daniel Craig having more agency over the way he's dressed. So that's also to be celebrated. So it's really difficult to answer. But I would say that Roger Moore's, of all the of all the bonds, of all the tailors, I do have to say that Cyril Castle's coat is probably the most beautiful piece of workmanship out of all of them. But it, it comes at a very high cost of ignoring other people's work. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's fascinating prior to Roger Moore in 1985, you know, most tailors talk about how they can recognise their own and other tailors' work and they'd sit in the cinema and sort of compare their own work with others and they'd know who tailored what. Um, you know, and that's sort of what Le Carre's book, The Tailor of Panama, is almost about, this kind of recognition of tailoring and spies. Um, I'm currently writing a chapter on that, so that's, you know, in my head. But it's, this, you know, so, yeah. So if you want to, like, put a gun to my head and say, which which is the best piece <laughs> of tailored item clothing, I'd say Roger Moore, Cyril Castle, you know, uh, New York and the beautiful overcoat he wears. But, you know, uh, it's very, very difficult to pin that down. You're, you're in good company. And we've actually mentioned that coat, the Cyril Castle coat before. So, um, Gorgeous yeah, coat, not, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> and also the, the photos of him for the, the promotional photos of Roger for that film as well with the, turtle, the the polo neck or turtleneck, whatever you call it. He does look phenomenal. Um, he looks like decades younger than Connery at that time. Um, mm. And uh, amazingly was older. One person you haven't mentioned though, well, is, um, is Timothy Dalton because... Uh, famously wasn't that interested in, in the costumes. Is that is that right? As far as I can I mean, he was interested in the costumes as far as in he didn't want to wear tuxedos or rather dinner suits in, in British parlance. And what's so fascinating then with licence, which I do love as a film, and I love uh, living, uh, sorry, I love um, Living Daylight. So he wears, you know, lots of, well, three, doesn't he, tuxedos in the Living Daylights. Um, and then it's not until license where he gets to have more casual clothing. And he is really quite fascinating. And there's a wonderful story told by John Clenn on uh, the commentary uh, for The Living Daylights that Timothy Dalton famously wanted to pull the um, shoulder pads out of his uh, suit jackets, you know. Um, so he is really interesting. And, and what's going on there, I found, was a discourse about wanting to distance himself from Roger Moore as much as highlighting that he'd actually read the James Bond novels, you know. So he wanted to say, oh, well, you know, Fleming would never have tailored Bond in this or or he would never have worn these fabrics, which was a little bit of, I think, um, an interpretation going on there because, of course, Fleming famously never really references um, who Bond is tailored by. You know, there's very brief mentions, of course, but there's not, you know, an explicit, oh, Bond is tailored by this you know, person or this firm or he wears this particular thing. And it's really Fleming's secretary um, that 
actually ends up outlining what one wears. So, you know, that that is quite interesting. But yeah, then Timothy Dalton's fascinating because, of course, he's the first Bond to, to wear, okay, it's made-to-measure suits. Um, but he, he wears made-to-measure suits that are sourced from a firm based in Leeds, so outside of London. So he's the sort of, besides Roger Moore and Anglo Vitucci, he's the first Bond to wear um, British made suits that are outside of London, you know, um, whereas Roger Moore's British made suits were always made in London. So I think that's quite a nice little, you know, development in the Bond series. Um, and of course, Timothy Dalton gets his way when it comes to Licence to Kill because he's not dressed in so many, you know, high-end, as we called it, tuxedos or, or dinner suits. Um, you know, but Licence to Kill is a fascinating um, film to analyse in terms of costume, partly because for once, Berman and, Berman's and Nathan's, as they were then known, they've since become Angel's costumers, weren't involved in costuming the film because it was mainly based in America um so you know you've got local costuming 705 doing the costumes for that film you've also got an American costume designer JD Tillen involved so you've got some really interesting changes in the way Bond is costumed for License to Kill um it, that is very different from previous Bonds but you've also I mean I would say that the costume change from Timothy Dalton, just not just because Timothy Dalton, but because they've got more action sequences, you know, so they need to produce more suits. Um, so the suits move from being more bespoke made to being made to measure made and off the peg, um, which is one of the key changes in Dalton's films, which weren't caused by Dalton, but more that Dalton was more of a Bond sort of action hero. You know, in a sense, he's sort of like a pre-Daniel Craig, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh, in many ways, yeah, in many ways. It's, it's interesting you say that about Licence to Kill because we've talked about on the podcast that it has such a different look to all the other Bonds. And obviously we've not come in at the angle of costume, but that makes complete sense. Uh, another reason why it looks so different, yeah. It's Bond, I mean, I think I argue, it's Bond meets uh, Miami Vice, you know, which of course yeah. J.D. Tillen um, worked on as the costume designer. And Robert Darby, who, by the way, is one of my favourite Bond villains. I think he's fantastic in it. Um, you know, but J.D. Tillen might not get away with dressing Bond in pastels, as um, Timothy Dalton famously puts it, but she certainly gets her way with dressing Robert Darby in pastels. You know, and she, <laughs> she actually makes a bit of a dig in Sally Hibbins' book saying, you know, oh, well, you know, Robert understands that a man can wear pastels, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah, he's one of the best uh, Bond villains. He's definitely one of our favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just you quickly, um, you dropped in there while you were talking, that di- was it Diamonds of Forever is one of your favourites? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, that's a big, that's a bold um, move. It's um, it's, it's definitely a uh, polarizing film. Um, is, is is that your favorite of the Bond films, um, or like are there which are your favorites? I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Oh, that's hard. That's really hard. I mean, I'd say Diamonds is definitely one of my favorite Bond films. I love it. I love the campness. I love the scripts and how they developed. Um, if you get a chance to take a look at some of them, Tom Mankiewicz is fascinating. And just in terms of costume, and I mentioned this in my book, you know, 
his script changes around casting decisions and costumes. So originally, for example, um, Tiffany is not supposed to wear a platinum blonde wig. She's supposed to end up with that, very similar to the book, uh, the original novel. But after the casting of Jill St. John, um, they change it around. So she ends up with natural red hair, which is, of course, what Jill St. John has. Um, but they actually then use Jill St. John's wigs in the film, which I find really quite fascinating. So there's some wonderful costume moments in that. Um, in terms of other favourite films, you know, I think Majesties is the film before that is wonderful for costume. You know, um, Tomorrow Never Dies has some amazing costume moments in it. Uh, one of my favourites is at Elliot Carver's cocktail party with the newspaper print uh, dresses and jackets worn by the waiters and waitresses. I think that's just such attention to detail that it's amazing, you know, and really fits in with the theme of Elliot Carver, who's one of my favourite villains, being a newspaper magnet. In terms of some of my favourite films, they're actually, they, it's really curious. They tend to be like the second James Bond films. I don't know why. So obviously from Russia with Love. Um, George Lazenby only did one, so he doesn't count. But I, you know, I love Live and Let Die. But I really love The Man with the Golden Gun. You know, I think it's fun. It has some really interesting adaptation going on. Who doesn't love Christopher Lee, a Scaramanga? You know, no. I love Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Timothy Dalton, before that, License to Kill. You know, it's quite dark in a way. Um, and I'm probably one of the unusual ones to say I actually really quite like Quantum of Solace as well. You know, I have this thing about second bomb films. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying it's better than Casino Royale or even Skyfall, but Quantum of Solace, if you really watch it in terms of the monochromatic theme and the characters and the way they're dressed, it's absolutely brilliant to watch it in that way, you know. And I will say something for Quantum. It's an hour and 40 minutes, you know. (laughs) You know, it's quick, you know. There's an outstate welcome, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think we need to appreciate Quantum a little bit more than we do. Talking of the Daniel Craig films, then, what did you make of uh, No Time to Die? You've, you mentioned that you've seen it twice now, um, and particularly, obviously, the costumes as well. What, what did you think of it in that context? Okay, so I need to do, like, a, again, a, a, a proper analysis of, of No Time to Die costumes. But what I will say, and I think everyone will agree with, with me on this, is that Paloma is the standout character. I haven't met anyone or spoken to anyone who doesn't not love Paloma um, and her entrance into Bond, as, sh- as short as it may be, but she she made a huge impact. And what I particularly noticed just on first watching it was that her uh, Michael Losoido Alessandra dress um, was very much reflective of Anya Masova's in Spy Who Loved Me. Um, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. And I thought her jewellery, particularly her necklace, uh, which was sourced from Chopard's uh, The Green Carpet Collection, um, was very reflective of what Paris Carver's necklace, um, worn by, you know, what she wore in um, Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, that was designed by David Morris and is famously known as the James Bond necklace. So I thought that Paloma was excellent. And I think that everyone I've spoken to really enjoys Paloma. Um, and there's some interesting, you know, fashion scenes. So when we first see uh, Bond and Naomi walking into MI6 and you've got the kind of Sean Connery 
you know, pay off against Roger Moore in terms of Nomi's safari suit. I think you've got some really interesting costumes going on there. Um, and from what I can tell online, you know, the what I call the first aid jumper, which is that blue end-pill jumper um, worn by Daniel Craig in the sort of final scenes of the film has been very, very popular with certain male fans of the franchise trying to buy it up. So that's quite interesting as well. Um, you know, personally, I'm a little bit mixed at the moment about No Time to Die. I think that, you know, the there's two different films going on that have been put together. Um, you know, so there's some beautiful location work, beautiful cinematography, but I think at the same, and there's some really interesting characters they're bringing out, but I think there's maybe too many characters that they're introducing, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I've got to come to analyse it to costume, but I'd say, you know, it it's a good swan song for Craig, but whether they could have just left it in no time to die and had a happy, rather fun film to finish off on, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I do think it rounds off the Craig era very nicely. Um, or not, depending on your opinion of the ending, which I won't. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure everyone knows what the ending is now, but I'm not going to say it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. And I think, but what I will say is that Craig... You know, as we as we had with Roger Moore, is very interested in menswear and fashion, and I really hope that whatever he goes on to do, that will continue. Um, you know, and I hope that the new bond that we have, um, besides going back to being sent on missions by M, which would be very nice, rather than going rogue, <laughs> you know, I'd be really interested to know who he's going to be tailored by as well. Well, that that. That brings me to the question. If you were in charge, who would you cast as the next Bond? Oh, no, that's a really hard one. That's the worst mm. one so far. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, it's got to be an unknown actor, hasn't it? Because, well, okay, with the exception of Roger Moore, who was an established TV star, you know, they, they go with, I say unknowns, they go with relatively unknowns, you know, they... So everyone that's suggesting, I don't know, Henry Cavill, is it, lately? Mm. Tom Hiddleston. Um, who, uh, by the way, I, I'd personally love to see a redhead as Bond. My husband disagrees with me, you know, because of the villains and Fleming, you can't have a redhead as James Bond, but I'd like to see it, you know. Um, I, You know, I, are they are going to choose someone unknown that's not really being spoken about right now is my prediction. You know, it will come out of the blue. You know, Daniel Craig, you've got to remember this. He, you know, I mean, it, it's funny. I used to teach um, Elizabeth, the Shaka Kapoor film. Yeah. Um, to students. And it was hilarious because when they were watching it, James Bond, Daniel Craig was already established. And they'd laugh and go, oh, that's James Bond, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, he wasn't James Bond at the time, was he? And they're like, oh, no, you know? And there he is in his monk's cloak, sweeping through the these corridors of Elizabethan England. And, you know, people forget that about Daniel Craig. He was not well-known. So they, they're going to choose another, like, you know, unknown actor, one that's not part of the bookies, you know. So my my recommendation is you do not put a bet on 
what they currently have <laughs> because you will lose quite a lot of money. Um, I, I will eat my non-existent hat if if I'm wrong on this, but I honestly think it's going to be an unknown, you know, you know, not René Jean Page, not, you know, Henry Cavill. People have mentioned them already. So, you know, they want to go with someone they don't know. But it will be interesting. But I do think that James Bond will be male. I don't think they're going to muck around with that one. Yeah, I think that I think Barbara's been very vocal about that, hasn't she? I think that's uh, that's a safe bet. So if, I mean, if you're not going to if you're not going to choose an actor, what about a tailor for Bond? Is it going to be British? That's even harder. That, that, you know, <laughs> I mean, because of the way they change the tailors, you know, no longer are we going with kind of the smaller tailors based outside of Savile Row. Bond never wears a Savile Row suit, but, you know, based in and around there. So, you know, long gone are the days where you have an Anthony Sinclair or a Dimmy Major or a Doug Hayward, Cyril Castle, etc. tailoring these suits. You need to have a multiple menswear firm that will be able to do the quality expected to be seen on screen. But you need to produce a lot, which is why Brony was chosen for Piers Brosnan. And so it's really difficult. I mean, unfortunately, the name that springs to mind actually here is Armani, you know, because yet they haven't done it. And we have had evidence of, you know, um, Italian tailoring. But I just don't know, you know, who knows what they're going to choose. I, I suspect it won't so much be based on who is cast as James Bond, because with the exception of Roger Moore, we have evidence that it's not really until later that Bond actors really have agency over the way they dress. I suspect it'll be whoever the costume designer and the wardrobe team and the stylists that are involved. It's basically who they know and who can produce enough suits that they want, you know, a week before that they need them, you know. So I think that's going to be their main thoughts on that. And, of course, where the Bond film will be filmed, you know, they need to, of course, have suits and various costumes ready uh, for the location work they do. So, you know, I think that's, you know, their their first thoughts. And then they'll, you know, later sort out what, you know, whoever is cast as James Bond might possibly want to wear. And, of course, if it uh, ends up being a period piece as well, that would probably... That would add to the decision because we, we well me and the other tom we hope for a period piece set in the six fifties 50s or 60s bond for the next one is what we hope so that would obviously make a big change for what would be needed it would um i i'm not sure that will happen <laughs> No, that's just what I say. I think that might be wishful thinking. I mean, I, I'd love to see, by the way, a period bomb piece. I'd love to see, like, adaptations of Fleming's novels because my argument beyond, beyond costume and fashion has always been that the best films are, are actually the ones, not my favourite, the best ones are the ones based on Fleming's novels. So I think the best of... Um, you know, Daniel Craig's films is Casino Royale. And that's actually based on an adaptation. So, you know, I, I think that there's really something in that. And I would love to see that myself. I just think that Eon just don't do that. And yeah. they don't want to engage as well with the, the official novels that have been published since, have they? So, you know, yeah. I, th I think that it's very unlikely. Um you know, I mean, I think I just wish for Bond going back on a mission again, you know, sent by M to go and do something. 
I think that would be, you know, yeah. historic enough. <laughs> yeah. Just a simple mission would be nice as well. Nothing too complicated. Exactly. Um, before we wrap things up, um, well, I just wanted to quickly ask you um, just about the economics of getting a, 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 of having a suit in a James Bond film. So you mentioned there, like Tom Ford and Brioni. How do they? Is there an exchange of money between Eon and the uh, and these companies for getting their suits in there? Like, who pays for the suits? Is it Eon? I think, <laughs> you know, I think that it's likely that Eon do pay for the suits. Um, in terms of promotion, you know, there'll be different agreements with the companies involved on how they publicise, promote, etc. You know, so NPIL, for example, at the moment are very much putting in their window, in their like window displays over the special, you know, blue jumper that Bond wore. And, you know, you see Oliver Brown, you know, putting the very expensive swimming trunks, you know, (laughs) out on their window displays. I mean, I, I would love to know, actually, and I don't know if any of your listeners are interested in informing me, I would love to know who has bought the £350 Connery style blue romper suit to wear on a beach. I would love to know because I cannot imagine any one of my friends who are Bond fans buying that to wear on a beach anywhere. I mean, maybe it's people just collecting it, you know, like the octopusy gown, the reproduced one that Eon did. Maybe it's just fans buying it for their own collections and that would make sense. But I would love to know if anyone actually wears this stuff as beach wear. I'm wearing one right now. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I would love to know because in my research into the 1960s, a lot of this stuff did not sell and they're not selling at extreme prices. It's more that most people do not want a suit with a pocket for hand grenades. So I would love <laughs> to know who is now buying it you know beyond just you know fans who have collected items and that totally makes sense Mm. to me um you know i'd love to know if you know because lots of people don't have expendable cash do they so paying 250 pounds for a pair of swimming trunks to me seems like well you're buying that as a collector's item not to wear just down the beach particularly if you live in britain and with british weather you know (laughs) you you don't want to risk it do you you know you don't want to ruin that so I'd love to know who is buying this stuff. But going back anyway, I've, I've, you know, gone off on a tangent there. But, you know, going back to the agreements, I think it's very much down to, you know, will Eon do pay, you know, um, the suits are not used for product placement, I think, in the same way that other items are. So they will pay the stylist the, and those who commission suits and they will pay for the, the company um, to provide the suits. I don't think there's really much question about that. It's about then how the company and what permissions they have um, in terms of publicity and promotion around that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Watches, for example, and accessories and shoes are very different to what Bond wears as a suit um, and what is allowed to you know kind of go on in terms of that advertising beyond the bomb films and i've probably waffled there so i do apologize i hope you can't cut that bit out about the waffle 
absolutely not it's been it's been fascinating having you on dr chapman i really appreciate you taking the time to come on um and talk about the costumes maybe we'll have you on again further down the line because i just think there's so much more we could talk about mm. um but where where do people find you um online if they want to um follow what you're up to and and, and when you're from russia with love book is coming out okay so i am at luella chapman uh on twitter so people can follow me on there so yeah just follow me on twitter i'd say is probably the easiest thing to do um not everyone uses facebook these days and instagram i'm a kind of new person too so <laughs> i do not know um Bre- brendan if people want to get hold of the show by email how do they get hold of us oh no you're testing me now it's not me that does it is it okay, podcast at james bond eight is jamesbondatoz.co.uk exactly yes yeah. and on okay. social media at jamesbondatoz I know that one you know that one yeah. uh, well th- thanks again to Luella Chapman for, for joining us for this episode I'm from Russia with love we will return next week weekly hopefully we'll be fully recovered by then I'm yeah. sure um, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us Dr Chapman um, James Bond A to Z will return next week thank you ciao James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Inglemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.